Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. L.A. leaders call it the greatest thing ever to happen to LAX. Angelinos everywhere say, finally, LAX presents LAMP, a modernization project designed to relieve traffic congestion. Connect LAX with public transit and move you in and out of the airport on a people mover. Coming soonish to your airport, LAX. Get all the details at LAXishappening.com. This is the Alliance Guys podcast on Blog Talk Radio for Alliance-Wrestling.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Alliance Guys podcast. I'm your host, J-Cal. With me, of course, is uh, DKM. And uh, I hope we'll be joined by uh, Jaden in just momentarily. And our guest, uh, Bill Barons, will be with us in just a minute. Um, I do want to send out a special congratulations to two men who uh, wrestled in the same match last night. And that would be uh, Wardell Walker, who won the uh, NWA National Heavyweight Championship at the uh, Sawmill, at their Gathering of Champions event. Uh, Wardell Walker's been one of those guys who I've been a fan from afar for quite some time. Uh, You know, I haven't been able to see too many of his matches live, but uh, he's always been somebody I thought that the uh, NWA should use and and should trust into carrying one of those uh, uh, Board of Director Championship belts, and he finally got one last night. Unfortunately, it was at the expense of uh, Damian Wayne, who's a friend of the show, and uh, Damian Wayne had a great reign as a national champion. I don't think it'll be the last time you see a, a board of director title around his waist. And I'm sure, uh, DKM, what are your thoughts on uh, on uh, Damian Wayne and in his reign as national champion? Well, of course, anybody who knows me knows I'm a big fan of Damian Wayne. So, and he certainly took the title. He certainly uh, defended around. Came to Texas, defended a couple of times. He's defended it in the Mid-Atlantic area where he's based out of. Uh, and he did enough to keep his profile up that he's the number one contender to the world title. So I, I don't think you can look back at his reign and think anything negative about it. And much like you, I'm very excited for, for Dale Walker. You know, all all he does is wrestle everywhere. <laughs> I I so, there's an atom into that uh, addendum, I should say. Uh, he wrestles everyone well. Um, he, I haven't seen the guy had a bad match. He was out here in uh, Southern California with the Wrestling Cares Project, um, Wrestling Cares Association, and uh, Wardell wrestled uh, former NWA national champion Pepper Parks, and they had a heck of a bout. Uh, Wardell lost that match, but you could see how talented he is, and, and I think what a great choice for the NWA to trust the title with somebody. Uh, like Wardell Walker, so I, I think that's great to see him with the belt. I, I mean, I agree. It's just, I mean, nothing I can say other than well-deserved. Good job, gentlemen. So we tip our hat to to both guys and the NWA. Saw 
Um, our guest this week is, uh, well, he's a very well-known uh, name in the world of professional wrestling. Uh, help, he uh, pretty much established NWA Wildside out there in uh, Cornelia, Georgia, and with that promotion alone kind of built uh, a reputation of uh, finding great talent and uh, kind of turning out some of the best talent in the last 10, 20 years out there in Cornelia. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to try to sell Bill Barron short. There's so much that we could talk to him about. Instead of uh, me trying to summarize his career, let's go ahead and just bring Bill on. Mr. Barron's welcome Hello, to the show. Hello, everybody. Oh, thank you very much. Good to be here. Now, now, Bill, first off, thank you for coming on our show. You're, you're a guest that people have wanted since day one, since we started this podcast in 2009. And it's kind of a shame that it took so long for us to for us to uh, finally get get the uh, opportunity to have you on our show, but we, we greatly appreciate it. Um, I know a lot of the fans of the uh, National Wrestling Alliance and the fans of wrestling in the South are, are very familiar with the promotions that you've worked with and worked for. Um, but for those who aren't familiar with you, Bill, can you give us a little rundown of, of who you are and what you do? Uh, well, who I am, what I do. Um I my wrestling side of my life followed uh, a career as a syndicator for television programming. Um, I ran my own company for years and subcontracted myself out uh, to, among others, Lytton Syndication, where I was a vice president, World Sports, where I was an officer of the company, Universal te- uh, Television, where I was a director, and so on. I, um, As that industry changed, uh, somehow, somewhat magically, I'd always been a wrestling fan, and I sort of stumbled into wrestling. I had uh, associated with wrestling folk when I'd go to the conventions, but more as a fan. Uh, you know, first time I met Jerry Jarrett was at a convention when he was there with Max Andrews, but probably neither, uh, probably I barely remember it, and I know he doesn't. But I got into the business quite literally with a phone call from Jerry Jarrett. It was in 1993. Uh, before that, I had been helping going back to the late 80s get shows on TV, but I really had no active involvement on my own other than being TV boy and helping people get on stations and putting together wrestling blocks for things like the Prime Network, which eventually became Fox Sports. Um, but uh, I had written some letter to the editor uh, in Wade Keller's uh, early torch back when Wade was, you know, either in grammar school or somewhere around there, and <laughs> um, and and I was commenting on a high def taping that Jim Crockett was doing in Texas in 1993. And, you know, if anybody's paid any attention, uh, and certainly they have recently, high def is now something that's real. But in 1993, there were probably three Japanese scientists that were able to watch it on a television set. And nobody else was, yet, yet Crockett was stupidly, I thought, going out and doing this. And he was paying a whole bunch of folk way too much money. Paul Lee was there helping out. I remember um, uh, I uh, we were, were there. People were loaned from USWA. It was just silly. People just went in for a payday. And I wrote about that. And I wrote in general my opinions on wrestling and television. And Jerry Jarrett called and said, "Hey, you're a TV guy who seems to know wrestling. Uh, I'd like you to help me." And he laid out a plan for his son Jeff Jarrett to become a promoter by me closing new towns for USWA and Jeff becoming a promoter, which I did. Hmm. And we had a contract where he would pay me. Except we had one minor problem. When I, he said, call Jeff and tell him the towns you just closed so he can get started. And I called, and I, my first introduction to Jeff Jarrett, who I've worked with off and on since, uh, was him telling me to tell his dad that he wasn't interested in being a promoter. He wanted to be a wrestling star. And so all <laughs> of a sudden I'd done all this work, and it had led nowhere. 
Um, Jerry then said, well, will you go out on the road for all these other companies, right? And I go, yeah. He said, well, why don't you just take the USWA show, and if you can get it on stations, uh, I'll figure out a way somehow to get you paid. And we did get it on stations. Various networks and others picked it up, and we were in about 50%, 60% of the country with it. And Jerry cut a deal with WWE to subcontract the program from me, not from him, but from me, and to pay me for the right to sell commercials in a show I didn't even own. And um, that's how I got into the wrestling business was Jerry Jarrett figuring out a way to get me paid. That led to a contract with WWE, then a contract with WCW when Jerry went there to consult and then back to WWE. And I bounced around with that. In time, I got more actively in the business, particularly at the tail end of USWA, where stupidly I was even booking at one point, uh, where actually Mike Samples was booking but they didn't like his booking, and they hadn't decided to fire him yet, so they used to send me the formats and the scripts or whatever he had created and ask me to rewrite them. So I was fixing things. I always wondered what Mike thought was, was going on at the TVs when the format showed back up, and it was totally different, but I think Lawler was claiming credit for it because um, he was known to change scripts, but he normally only did that at 3 in the morning the, uh, the, the evening before we did the tapings in Memphis. But I was getting more involved. Then I got to work with Dutch Mantell, and with Dutch's help and Jerry's help, I, I learned how to, how to book, um, which is an ongoing process to this day. Um, right. USWA went out of business. It was sold to some people who had no idea what they were doing. They put it out of business in three months. And I had an obligation to WWE to deliver a TV show, and Jerry Jarrett suggested I consider going to business with Bert Prentice in Nashville, and I did. And we created something called Music City Television immediately that serviced the WWE distribution. Uh, the contract was transferred over to that show. We eventually named that NWA Worldwide when I joined the NWA. And I want to—I think it was in '99. It could have been in '98. I can't remember which year I joined. Could have been '98. Uh, I think it was '98. Now I think about it. And um, and we continued there for a while until I decided I was tired of driving over the mountain to Nashville where I had been a commentator, an on-air talent, and had helped run the shows. And But I learned a lot. Uh, you can learn a ton about promoting from Bert Prentice. You can learn both the good and the bad, because uh, <laughs> Bert has both of those in him. Uh, but when it comes to drawing a crowd and milking money out of that crowd, there are a few people with more genius than Bert Prentice in doing that, quite literally. But he's, all, but he's not a detail guy, and he's not, never been a television guy. Uh, he usually only worried about the main event, worried about promoting tonight, tonight, tonight for the show. So what he wasn't doing well, hopefully I delivered, and we started changing the concept of what, uh, the way things were done. Uh, I began realizing I was, and I, I realized it definitively later, I was not a good promoter. Bert was what I was getting some talent at is recognizing young talent that had potential. The first were uh, some kids that uh, Matt and Jeff Hardy decided to bring to Nashville one time. Uh, we had been assigned Matt and Jeff Hardy by WWE. They were going to start uh, doing development with us in Nashville, except that the week they signed uh, was the week they started with WWE on television, so we actually never had them show up together for a show, although Jeff came back a couple of times independently. But they brought in first Shannon Moore, and then Shannon Moore brought in Joey Matthews, and we'd already been using Mike Maverick and Shane Helms. We were more interested in Shane. And then when they brought Joey in, Joey brought in Christian York, and we created something called the Bad Street Boys, uh, Shane, Shannon, Christian, and Joey. Um, 
spinning forward. The show was on television in Atlanta where it was seen by Jimmy Hart, and it ended up with all of those guys getting development deals, and two of them ended up going from our version of a boy band to WCW's version of a boy band with three count. Literally, that was created from seeing a video we produced that aired on um, NWA Worldwide at that time. Um, I ended up starting up in, in Georgia. I was running on my own. I was approached by Ray Rawls and Steve Martin, uh, who also go by Rick Michaels and Chance Williams. And they had been, for about six months, been running a little show called NCW, and they'd been doing a little cable uh, program. And they wanted the kind of distribution that I had been doing with uh, Music City and NWA Worldwide and the others, and we came to an agreement with, which led to what eventually became uh, NCW Wildside, then eventually NWA Wildside, and then over time I uh, bought out both of them at various times. Rick had actually been bought out, I think, before that by Steve, and then I bought Steve out and got rid of him, and Wildside became solely mine, although I booked it from the beginning. And Wildside led me to everything I'm doing now because it's there that I really was able to start developing wrestling talent, starting with a person that was already there, AJ Styles, and moving on from there. And AJ remains my primary client to this day. Now, when when you made that move, uh, going let's go back to before Music City Wrestling. What was the what was the um, catalyst to make Music City Wrestling join the NWA? What was the uh, what convinced you at that time that uh, NWA was something that uh, you needed to move forward with uh, with uh, Music City Wrestling? I had always been a fan of the brand. Um, and if you think to the timing of all of this, um, the NWA had been very prominent because it had been showcased very aggressively on WCW television by the Crockett's, except somewhat exclusionary. And it led to a lawsuit, and it led to, in the early 90s, um, the NWA going off on their own and having to crown their own champion, the first effort to do that didn't work out very well, uh, or it did, depending on your point of view. It ended up be, it being sensational in that Shane Douglas became a five-minute champion, uh, and then eventually Chris Candido became that champion. In around this whole time, I was working with Jim Cornette in addition to what I was doing in USWA, although I never really ran that by Jerry. I was sort of working both ends against the middle, and eventually we did a feud with USWA. But I was also doing Cornette's TV distribution, and and I can't say helping as much as I did with USWA, because certainly I didn't get involved in any uh, real major aspects of the business, but I was Cornette's TV guy. And Cornette always had a fondness for NWA, and we were doing some various NWA stuff, uh, with Cornette being sort of a member um, with Howard Brody having approached him. Um, as everything began changing, Smoky Mountain went out of business, USWA went out of business, our TV distribution very quickly uh, became the largest independent TV distribution that there was. Uh, there was ECW, but that was considered to be something else, and then there were obviously the big leagues, and then there was us. Uh, we were quite literally number four. And, um, and the only other company that had anything out there didn't have any major distribution and that would have you know would have been in somebody like Danny Davis at OBW that was doing weekly TV but primarily just for Louisville where I had put him on the air so that sort of I I was approached the you know it's they sort of wanted me involved because it immediately gave the brand a little bit of credibility and I was a fan of the brand 
So in a mass flurry of a diversity of promoters, good and bad, during that period of time, because Howard Brody pretty much threw darts at a dartboard blindfolded, and that's how we ended up with our membership. And we got some good people, and we got some not-so-good people all at the same time. But they grew from five members to about 15 in about a minute, and I was one of those. And um, Bert really didn't want to be the member, so I paid the fee and became the member, and Bert just shared in the use of the brand in terms of what we were doing together at the time. So that, that's sort of how it got started, and I had no greater aspiration than that uh, when I went to the first meeting in New Jersey that year. Now, I know you met some uh, colorful individuals while uh, dealing, uh, working in the NWA. Um, for, for some time, you were also president of the NWA. Would you uh, like to uh, tell the listeners how um, you kind of went from just being a member of the NWA to becoming president? And I know that the uh, roles have changed quite significantly over the years, but what did it entail then to be president of the NWA? Well, almost immediately, uh, Howard was the early president during the time I was there, Howard Brody. Uh, and I always ended up as his vice president from the first year. Um, exactly how, I don't really know, but uh, uh, it was a lot looser goosier in how it was run back then. Pretty much um, the members were just getting their feet wet while there was a voting process. There was just an awful lot of stuff Howard would do, and he needed help, and I was the guy giving him help. Uh, Bob Trobich being the other, who at the time was the attorney of the organization, the man that had sued WCW on behalf of the then-owners. Um, and then over time, I kept getting voted either on the board of directors, at least, or vice president. And eventually at one of the meetings, and I believe it was Parkersburg, West Virginia, I forget what year that was, but TNA was already going at the time, uh, was when I ended up getting uh, put in as president and held that position for a year. And coming out of that, we had one more president. If memory serves, I think we only had one more president after that, and that guy had to resign in the middle of his term for various reasons I won't bore anybody with, except that uh, he resigned from the company and resigned as president and and stayed in Winnipeg. And um, uh, we made a decision. Actually, Fred Rubenstein uh, made the motion that we change from having a president running things, because we always bitch to the president. Whoever the president was, they were doing wrong. It's very much equivalent to the way politics works in general. Having the spot means you can't do a good job almost as a given, because, you know, I, and our politics was so similar to some of the silliness I see in our, our U.S. government politics, where you can say almost anything, and it's okay, because it's politics. It's not a lie. It, it's politics. You know, you can make shit up. And, and quite literally, that's what would happen all the time, and it's what happens all the time now. No, no president really gets, you know, in this country really serves on their own merits. They serve on a combination of what they're able to accomplish and then what people read that they parrot. You know, it's so, you know, in my, in my area, I'm sure that if somebody in the NWA had said that I was clearly a Muslim that was trying to kill Christian values, that would probably have been true, you know, just because somebody said it. Right. And, and, and we had that kind of mentality, so it made it hard for any president to accomplish something because part of the organization would be conspiring against that guy rather than helping them. So we kept beating our head against the wall. So the idea was, why don't we create an executive director who isn't one of us, somebody else, and that somebody else became Bob Trobich. 
Um, and, and we can probably get along better with him. And more importantly, he'll have the power to do whatever the heck he wants, even if we don't like it, because that's the power we're going to give him. And maybe that will allow us to move forward. And it really did work better um, for us as a group. That and the attrition of members over time, getting rid of some of our poorer members, um, certainly helped, I think, the organization um, flourish in, at some level. First, we had the association with TNA where our brand was enhanced through their use of it. Some of our members didn't like that. Some did, but you can't, uh, you, you have to admit no matter what your position is on it, that more people got to see the NWA brand than had in years by getting into that association. Uh, right. And so it was good for us. Magazines began paying attention again to our brand, which the industry magazines had not been. They couldn't care less what we were doing as individual members. They covered me as as you know a guy with tv and a guy with talent you know talent coming in i had the aj styles and the jimmy raves and the hernandez's and abyss is justice and you know all these guys i was developing so i got i got a lot of press and i got press even when i was wrestling in in nashville but uh, the organization really didn't get a lot um then with tna we started getting more we eventually divorced from tna smartly they realized they needed to push one brand and it was called tna and whether it was smart or not, we got a payout, and we made a little bit of money, and we went on in our merry way and found our own champions and continued that until the dramatic changes that occurred last year in the NWA in terms of uh, who owns the brand and where it's going. Um, so that, that was the biggest problem of being president was getting the support of enough people and hanging on to the spot long enough to get anything done. So very, very analogous to the cluster that is our, our U.S. presidency. <laughs> um, you know, no, no matter what you do, uh, you don't get credit for what you do well, and you get blamed for anything that goes wrong, even if you didn't do it. And, you know, it's pretty much how it works. Now, when when you were in the NWA, because, again, you were a part of the NWA, a pretty integral part of the NWA for many years, uh, what were some of the, the highlights that you thought, uh, with, both uh, both with uh, Wildside and also with uh, – Music City, and, and even later with Anarchy, what were some of the highlights that, uh, that you would hang your hat on as uh, good moments for the NWA that you guys, uh, between those three promotions, produced? Uh, well, highlights is, again, that's very subjective. What I enjoyed and where I was involved um, prior to the TNA deal, which I uh, – uh, helped set up with Jerry Jarrett, Jeff Jarrett, their attorneys, and then it was blessed by then-President Jim Miller, and we went forward, and it ended up being both a good and a bad relationship over time. I think that was a good thing. I, I happen to think that, that we were very smart to do that. Not only did we make money from it, we got visibility, and our champions became major stars, not just indie guys. Uh, right. the, the downside being the availability of those guys in our local markets, sort of. So there was a, a yin-yang, good-bad that went on. Um, prior to that, I had embraced two sets of titles that I was a point person on as I did other things for the organization. One was the junior title, the world junior, and the other were the world tags. And with the various folk, with the tags, uh, Rock and Roll Express for the 900th time were champions. Bad Attitude were four or five time champions. The New Heavenly Bodies were champions. Uh, but I babysitted that, and we finally began to get champions into other markets it may not have been a nationwide thing but we finally were getting our uh, promoters to start booking the guys we called champions which is really the only way to enhance the brand you, you you can you can put it on a poster 
but you really enhance it by the utilization of people and recognizing them as champions. Uh, it's the challenge anybody has that wants to be an association built around a brand. The brand is best reflected by the face of the brand, whatever that is. Uh, junior t- title, we did the same thing, whether it be Tony Cazino or Jimmy Rave, who had an excellent series of runs with that title and various other folks. But again, these were people that were willing to go out there for 75 bucks to 100 bucks and drive long distances to get opportunity. Right. And that's what we needed. So I was proud of that. I thought that, and we were literally building from the ground up because the NWA, prior to my involvement, had been primarily focused around whatever Dennis Carluzzo was doing. Because hmm. relatively nobody else was doing anything. Steve Ricard was in New Zealand not doing anything. WCW had to resign. Jim Crockett was no longer in there. Howard Brody was not really promoting when he first got involved. He eventually started promoting in Florida um, and did so for a while until he finally got grumpy and, and resigned from the organization. But Dennis was pretty much what the NWA was doing. The champions, you know, when, when Candido beat Ter- Tracy Smothers, that was done up there. The ECW thing was done up there. It's, everything was up there. And my involvement good or bad, sort of changed and widened the focus, much as eventually Dave Marquez's involvement, because Dave was another guy that was predisposed to want to do television uh, and, had a, and was a TV guy. And so, But you need those guys. Otherwise, you're just a bunch of guys doing little shows. There's, right. there's, less, there's not as much going on. When there's the TV, or at least the perception of TV, um, it it expands people's perception of you a little bit. And, and remember, this was the infancy of the Internet, so there, wasn't, there weren't a bunch of matches up on a YouTube that didn't exist. Um, so we were, you know, my 60% of the country, which literally we had at one point, first for the Nashville stuff and eventually for the Georgia stuff, uh, that was pretty, pretty big. I mean, you know, and our guys were, were pretty impressed with that because they travel. You know, I'd go to Chicago and uh, for a Ring of Honor show or something as it got started. And all of a sudden, it would be, oh, I watched you on Wildside. Or Sean Waltman, I would see. I met for the first time, and Sean Waltman came up, and he said, I watch Wildside in Minneapolis. And I said, oh, you're the, you're the one. Um, you know, I, so it's amazing to us how many people saw our little show shot, you know, a two-camera shoot show with live announce that we did um, but the interesting thing is we started when I started with them in 98, 99, 99, I believe, with, with, uh, when I came over to NCW. From that day to now with Anarchy, um, not even counting the Nashville stuff that preceded it, was at least another 100-plus episodes. Um, we've produced out of that little building in Cornelia at least nearly 800 consecutive weekly hours of television, and we wow. continue to. Um, so I'm proud of that. And the NWA, for a while, was very much part of that, whether it was NWA Wildside or what was until recently NWA Anarchy. We were pleased to be considered to be um, one of the better calling cards of the organization in its modern era. And, um, and I, while I've not written that about myself, it's one of the things I'm pleased to see other people note whenever they comment on the NWA or on what I've done. I'm always, I'm always identified as, you know, uh, one of the key members or something like that, which, you know, that, that I'm proud of because, uh, you know, it accomplished something. In fact, without great detail, part of the way I was able to reconcile the recent changes in the brand was I realized 
it was going to be difficult for me to accomplish more for myself or the NWA than, than I already had. All I could do was just more of what I've been doing. And right. I'm going to continue to do more of what I've been doing. I'm just no longer doing it to the betterment or detriment of the NWA brand. Um, it has to figure out its own direction. Um, and I have to look back and be proud of, you know, the uh, 13, 14, 15 years, whatever it was that I was with the organization. I, I analogized it to sort of the decision that Jerry Jarrett made at one time. He had tried to buy the AWA from Vern Gagne, and Gagne would only sell it if Jerry gave Gagne's son Greg a full-time job, which, which Jerry did not want to do, and therefore he never didn't buy, even though he had shown up with, you know, a check for a certified check for well over a million dollars to buy the company ended up not buying it. And the reason he had been courting AWA was that he hadn't been able to book the NWA champion. More importantly, he hadn't been able to get the, the belt put on Lawler. Uh, they just wouldn't, they wouldn't do it. Crockett wouldn't let it go. And he, you know, he couldn't get flair in. he got dusty in one time. So he got, so he, he quit the NWA. He had been brought into the NWA by his mentor in wrestling, um, Eddie Graham, who meant everything to Jerry. So he had to at one point go, I'm going to throw this brand that means so much to me out because it no longer serves me, and I'd prefer not to serve it. And that decision he made, I reflected on years later and made a similar decision. Um, you know, I don't want to be associated with the brand that I was proud to be associated with, and I still have great respect for the brand just don't want to be associated with it now. And that I understand exactly what you're talking about. Um, I, I believe uh, 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 David Marquez had the same sentiment, and uh, I think a lot of the promoters that uh, initially have left the NWA had, had that same feeling where, uh, you know, they, they've done all that they could do under the current direction, and it was time for them to move on. Um, a lot of the promotions yeah, will you, that... Will you, uh, talk, will you talk about, again, I'll, I'll, he did, right? Well, you talk about what else I'm proud of. I'm proud of the very last year I was in the NWA because we had come up with an associate member program, and I had literally, I want to say it's 12, it could be 13 associates in three states right. that had all paid to be in the organization and were working through my membership in those states as associates, and three of them were uh, Anarchy was one, Rampage Wrestling was another, Smoky Mountain Wrestling was the third. Three were doing television. And all were doing multiple shows a year, the worst of them doing at least, you know, enough minimum. But in general, doing shows on average every other week, some, some a couple times a month. But it added up just with the people I had brought into the organization in my area alone. We were, we were promoting two, three, four hundred shows a year. Right. And doing three television programs, 52 episodes new a year, that were on the Internet and in, on various television stations, you know, using RPW on the Fox affiliate in Macon. So we had substance and presence. And I had gotten all these people to use as many of the same people the same way as possible. Right. So right. that... Much like in the old days, if you went to an NWA show within your driving distance, you weren't seeing a totally different crew. You were at least seeing a crew you were familiar with, maybe even the people you saw on television if you were watching. And I, we got a little bit of that going near the end uh, of the run, and I was proud of that. I, I thought we had accomplished a lot in doing that, and, it, and all of that went away. 
literally uh, in, in Georgia, there's now one, one NWA that calls itself, uh, I believe, NWA Atlanta, and they're not located in Atlanta. They promote south of Atlanta by, by about an hour and a half, uh, maybe an hour. I'm probably over-exaggerating it, but it's at least an hour. Um, <laughs> and then their Smoky Mountain stayed in. Uh, and I'm pleased that one of their guys got to be junior champion. I'm sure the two had some minor connection. And other than that, all those people went away. Well, and that's and a good I think segue. that's a shame. Uh, you know, because that certainly doesn't enhance the current brand, at least in my eyes. Um, not having people use it or going backward, perhaps. And so I remember I said earlier that the brand was focused when I came in in one general area. Now the brand seems to me to be focused in one basic area. And then there's a few other people out there. And, and Bill, that's a good segue because that, that was my question I was working on uh, getting to you. Uh, you had so many affiliates uh, that were working under you. And like you said, you guys kind of had delivered a, a similar storyline, similar wrestlers in, in a kind of a, a regional area, almost like you had a circuit going on um, between the, between the, uh, several promotions that were working with you. And uh, some of those promotions after leaving the NWA when you left uh, joined other various um, smaller alliances uh, like the uh, AIWF. And, uh, well, and I, I know was, the pretty much Woody's the only one that joined that one, but he, oh, he, okay. he and, and I don't, and I, you know, and he saw opportunity and he liked the people that were involved in that. Um, and and I, I do what I can still to help, all of the people that I worked with before, and Woody would be one of them for sure. Um, you know, he's got a, you know, periodically I'll help him book some people when he needs them. Uh, I know we, we have got, I've got Slim J coming in from Anarchy to work on one of his upcoming shows. But you're right, we, we, we began putting on, like, the, one of the groups that did a lot of travel to the various promotions was the group we called Jimmy Rave Approved at the time. Right. Um, Chip Day, Corey Hollis, Mike Posey, eventually for a brief period, Patrick Bentley, and Jimmy is the leader. And they were appearing all or in part in all over those three states. They were in Alabama. They were in Georgia. They went up to Tennessee. You were seeing that group, and they were called that. They were the same thing where they went. Sometimes there was a little sidestep in the storyline, like when they went into Chattanooga, where you only found out they were all aligned when you did. You didn't find it out immediately. But in general, everybody was doing the same thing. Um, I think that Woody liked that, and I think that's why he's tried to align with some other people and get them all to identify the same basic ch uh, champions, most of whom he's been crowning. So he's also okay. been able to become the primary player in that group, um, where he might not have been that within my group. Uh, he was an important player, but you know we had a lot of good people, so it was hard for anyone to you know, jump out and be the biggest guy when we had a, we had a lot of people accomplishing something, whether it was Jerry Palmer's Anarchy or, um, or Dr. Ga or Dr. Gagan's Rampage or Woody's thing or what Will Owens was doing in Alabama or what Tony was doing up in Smoky Mountain. We have, you know, a lot of good people. Do you see a, a benefit for promoters today to, to like join these alliances like the NWA or lesser extent like the AIWF or the UIWA? Uh, hard for me to uh, – the AI the, the, the one begins with an AI, I don't know. I, I just really know nothing about it. And But I guess the generalization I can give is if having this brand in addition to your brand, and that's the key thing to remember 
is anytime you embrace a brand, either you have to believe that you're augmenting, not replacing your primary brand. Because using the NWA, even when I was involved, I never owned the NWA. I was allowed to sublet an area by being a member. And if I wasn't a member, that area would go to somebody else, inevitably. That, that's the theory of it. So there, it wasn't an ownership situation when I was involved, although technically all of us members were owners, but uh, the realities were, based on how we were, were operating, we just had to rationalize, does the brand help us? TNA, for example, began once we began becoming a pain in the ass to deal with, which we were, um, and again, that's because of some of our members' short-sightedness from my perception, TNA finally sat down and went, well, what are, you know, fans aren't chanting NWA. If they're chanting anything, it's TNA. And if we're marketing a brand to TNA is the brand that's going to bring us to the party and allow us to become something more important, Uh, not NWA. NWA is gravy. So you sort of have to figure out when you're a brand, you, you don't want NWA to become everything you are unless you totally believe that that's the direction that's going to great, bring you to great money and great fame. Uh, I don't think it is. I don't think any of these outside brands can do that, and particularly not anymore. Um, whatever potential the brand I was associated with had for that, I think, is now passed. And it's going to be certainly something else at this point. Um, so I, my recommendation to other people is um, if you like the NWA, you're liking it because of its history, and if you can figure out how to capitalize on the history in your area, then there's probably still value to that brand. Um, but you always need to question, what do pe- are people going to know me about? And I've said this to even my crew when we dropped the NWA a while back, and, and Franklin Dove and I had this conversation as related to anarchy. People think of wild side as wild side we had the nwa brand in front of that but the crew thought of itself as the wild side crew not the nwa wild side crew they rarely added the superlative um anarchy is anarchy always was um the fact that it was nwa meant something but it was still anarchy uh i deliberately with the companies i've been associated wild side being the first bird Prentice came up with the wild side name i like the idea of company names that don't don't pretend to call themselves worldwide when they're not, uh, even though I used that name at one point, um, <laughs> but have a, have, a, have a perception of a greater reach simply because they're not regionalized in what they're doing. You know, Wild Side could be anywhere. Anarchy could be anywhere. Southern wrestling is in the South. So that was another thing that, that I liked, but the brand we wanted to associate on was Wild Side. It remains the brand. Uh, Anarchy remains the brand. Uh, there's just no longer sanctioning And the sanctioning only has value if you can figure out a way to realize the value and capitalize on it. We did a lot. I mean, we really capitalized on the NWA history in the early days of Wildside because I came in after there were a bunch of bounce checks on one of the TV deals that my new partners wanted me to do. I came in, and the storyline was I was the NWA jerk, who they would refer to as the damn Yankee, even though I grew up in Miami, Florida. (laughs) <laughs> they, the, damn, the damn Yankee was coming in, and the NWA brand was taking over, and NCW, the local brand, became the babyface. I became the heel. I aligned myself as with the NWA uh, elite, as I called them, 
and they initially were guys like the Rock and Roll Express, and then I embraced the local heel manager, Jeff G. Bailey, um, and we established something that continues to this day, which is Jeff G. Bailey for the entire time I have worked with him. And, uh, by the way, Jim Mitchell's best friend, they grew up together, and he is as talented, if not more talented, as a manager as, as Jim. Um, Jeff has always been the manager of the NWA elite or the elite. Um, and I created that at the time as the heel faction that was taking over the company. Eventually, I was turned babyface. The NWA became a babyface, and everything moved forward from there. But we really took advantage of that NWA brand at the beginning by doing the invading feud, which, you know, no matter how many times it works, if it's done well, it works. Um, you know, when USWA went into world class, they uh, tore down the world class sign, and it became USWA invading. Um, Jerry Jarrett, when he consulted for WCW, suggested an invasion there. And sometime after that, uh, Eric Bischoff had a, a brilliant idea of creating the NWO, um, which interestingly was very similar to Jerry's memo. But Jerry doesn't get the credit for that. But then again, Jerry would be the first to say um, everybody's done an invasion angle at one time or another. Um, whether it's a faction or an invasion, it's been a part of wrestling going back to the Dark Ages. Um, so, but that's that's how we use the NWA brand. If you can find a way to use it in that fashion, like we did, you can get some mileage out of it. And if you can't, then you're wasting your time. It just means you're promoting two things instead of one. Easier to promote one. Hey, Bill, this is DKM, and I was wanting to move topics a little bit here. You you touched on a lot of it already, but we when we talked with Dave Marquez a couple weeks ago, one of the things that's been noted is wrestling day with the promoters, there's almost a lack of a wrestling businessman out. A lot of the promoters are either former wrestlers or, you know, somebody who wants to just promote, kind of want to do it on the weekends. Some want to grow, some don't. Some have delusions of grandeur. And and then if you could, also, I'm also into a little bit in the actual business of wrestling. There's always a debate about do names draw, do names not draw, you know, name being a former WCW or TNA or WWEF guy. I was wondering if you'd give us your thoughts on that. Well, first of all, there's two sides of my answer. One is my, the self-serving one, and the other one's probably the truth. Um, the self-serving one uh, is you have to remember I'm, I'm an agent, booking agent, for many of the major stars in the business, you know, Kevin Nash, Scott Steiner, Rick Steiner, Tommy Dreamer, uh, the list goes literally on and on and on at my sbibookings.com website. Um, so, of course, that part of me wants to go, of course, spending blah, blah, blah for Kevin Nash and a first-class ticket is a good idea. Um, you know, clearly that's what you should do, promoter. That's the smartest thing you've ever done. The reality is um, promotion draws uh, wrestlers wrestlers don't that if you can tna learned that vividly by having some of the biggest stars in the business and you know because kurt certainly kurt angle is aj styles has become sting is hogan is only recently have they found venues where they're starting to draw i was there at the very beginning booking the earliest house shows and you know uh, just a few people were showing up and it didn't matter what we put on the poster it, it didn't matter we weren't spending enough money promoting not enough people were embracing the TNA brand yet, folk weren't showing up. 
So that's the challenge of promoting. The challenge of promoting is promoting. Burt Prentice does use stars, usually Jerry Lawler over and over, but he promotes his butt off. And that puts the butts in the seats. When we were running in Nashville with Burt promoting and us using our TV show at a time when TV used to help promote, now it sort of doesn't as much as I'd, I'd like to say it does, we were running both Friday and Saturday nights every week at the fairgrounds, and we were drawing five to 700 on Fridays and 700 to 1,200 on Saturdays every week for a year and a half. We stopped promoting on Fridays when we did a terrible house of 300 people. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, so you just think about that, you know, 300 people. <laughs> Anybody getting a 300 people show now would be going, holy crap, did I do great or what? <laughs> 300 was a show. We couldn't justify the rent is our thought process just in terms of the business aspect of it. And that gets back to where you framed your question, the business. You've got to figure out when you're a promoter what your business is. If your business is that you're running spot shows and you're making money on the shows themselves, show to show to show to show, then by golly, you have to learn how to budget and you have to realize simple math. And a lot of promoters don't, and a lot of wrestlers don't get it either. Uh, there was a company in Nashville that uh, ran until recently called Crossfire. And people yeah. watched uh, Marcus Pastorius, bless his heart, was doing this um, and, and believed himself to be doing a wonderful job and probably still does as he owes money to a bunch of folk with lawsuits pending. But the reality was he dramatically overbooked his card, and anybody with a brain that's been around the business for more than five minutes would look at the card, do the math in their head. I'm one of those people simply because I book a lot of these people, so I know what the rates are. So I'm, I'm going down, rent plus this, plus this, plus this, this guy, this guy, all this stuff, and he thinks he's going to be doing a TV deal, which, of course, he never had, but the fact that he had one positive meeting that suggested somebody might be interested someday was enough to convince him they were interested now. So you know, all of a sudden he's out there spending all this money, and every show he's having to borrow money to do the next show to creep back toward profitability which, by the way, was what happened with Jim Cornette and TV. He was spending so much to be on TV, he couldn't make it back at the shows. He started hot-shotting by bringing WWE stars in, and then his local crowd stopped not showing up because they knew eventually he'd bring the, the big stars back. So the hot-shotting ended up killing him. In the case of Crossfire, he was spending more than he was making. Very simple. The math was obvious. But interestingly, people from the outside would look and go, "You Crossfire drew... 500, Crossfire drew 700, Crossfire drew 800 with Bret Hart. That was a success, except that he lost $10,000 drawing 800 people. Wrestlers are looking out going, this is great. Look at all these people. What a success. Lost $10,000. Thank goodness the wrestlers got paid up and until the last show, and then eventually got paid, I think. That's where you've, you've got to figure out what your business is. If your business is a business of perception only and you don't care about making money, then let a bunch of people in for free because a big crowd always looks better than a small crowd. Push come to shove, figure out what your business is. When I was running Wildside, I was running a building full-time. I was running it every Friday, uh, every other Saturday. I was producing a TV program, and at the time, I was able to make nickels and dimes off of PI commercials with my TV I was making money merchandise at the building. I was selling concessions. I was a little making a little bit on tickets. It all added up, and I'm able to proudly say that for all the years I ran Wildside, I was profitable. That's the business. An awful lot of people look to the production of television, for example, as creating great success. Television is a process of expense. 
it takes a while to get to the profit unless somebody hands you a bucket load of money and says, I want to support your television project financially. And they don't expect to get that money back. Perhaps they're getting advertiser value. But unless you have that, the cost to produce the show, the cost to pay the talent, the cost to distribute the show, to, to edit it, to prepare it, to get it out there, all of that happens. Then if you're in the big leagues of wrestling, maybe you're selling commercials in your show. Well, that's a process of expense, too, because you have to get those clients, so that costs money getting them. Then you run the commercial, and then you invoice, and then you're paid maybe 90 to 120 days later. So in the big business of television, you're looking at a six-month to a one-year drag before you see revenue. So almost everybody that gets into television is deceiving themselves, and it's, it's much more egotistical than it is a business. If you can afford it, nothing wrong with it. Lose your money and be happy with what you're doing because you're having fun. But it's not necessarily a business. It's something else. And, and that's a lot of what goes on in wrestling. If you're running a show and you have to make money on that show, and your payroll is $3,000 because you brought in two or three big stars instead of one. By the way, it's never, never important to bring in more than one star if you bring in any star, because you can't promote one star any uh, three stars any better than one star. Three does not draw better than one. The math doesn't work that way. And if it does, <laughs> you should draw three times as many people. Right. But if you, if you put that guy out there, and let's say you've spent $3,000, and let's say your ticket price is $10, then... Hey, kids, do the math. You have to draw 300 people to break even on your talent alone. But wait a minute. I, had to, I probably had to rent the building. I might have to pay for insurance. Maybe I had other. Now you have to figure out what is your overall expense. Whatever that number is, if you're in this as a business and you're going off your gate plus gimmick sales plus concessions, you've got to figure out realistically what you can draw. And if you've done a show and you've never drawn more than a few hundred people to assume that because you're booking Joe Blow Superstar that you're going to draw enough people to cover that guy's expense without doing something extra special in promotion you've never done before because you've never drawn more than 200 people, uh, you know, at that point you're pissing in the wind. It's not going to happen. And too much of what goes on now is built on, I'm going to book all these stars that I think I would enjoy watching and that, and people are going to come and watch my show because of that. And then you've got promoters running out the back door afraid because they can't cover their payroll. By the way, no promoter should ever show up to a show without every dime they've committed prepared to pay out regardless of the gate. We no longer work off the gate in this modern age. That went away years, years ago because the gates just aren't there. The years of 30-some percent for Crockett and 20-some percent for Jared are gone. You can't do that. You've got to, you know, whatever you tell people are going to pay them is what you're going to pay them. And if you make money, bless your heart. But it's hard to do. That's why so, so many promotions go out of business, and those that t go do TV usually go out of business first. Well, I've noticed that it seems to be those that, like you are saying, that are drawing 700 that seem to go out of business first, where you get some of the ones that are drawing, you know, 200 consistently every week. You know, they're still around. Yeah, well, and, and, and although Wildside sport and later anarchy well, let me back up wild side and anarchy I, I figured out a long time part of my business by the way is that and I, I, I to this day I tell every wrestler that comes in Scott Hall's son Cody is coming in to, to start working with anarchy at our next show and like everyone else that approaches me I actually don't reach out 
that frequently to talent. They usually come to me. Uh, I, I'm not the guy that picks the phone up and calls blah, blah, blah and says, golly, gosh, I want to bring you in. It's the other way around. But to come in, you've got to drink the Kool-Aid that I can potentially help you. And, and I'm not going to go out of my way to convince you of that. I'm just going to say, hey, I've helped other people. That's fairly well known. Maybe I can help you too, but there's no guarantees. People that come into anarchy, as with Wildside, there was never a financial guarantee. And people drove hellacious distances for very little money. Back in the Wildside days, we used to have a car that would come in that had uh, Hunter uh, Delirious, the now booker for Ring of Honor, uh, Matt Seidel, now Evan Bourne making his comeback at WWE after an accident, um, Emily Daisy Hayes, and various others would get in a car from St. Louis and drive down to that little building in Cornelia because the reputation was it would help them get somewhere. And if you use just those three people as example, that they all did. And they all got there and they all learned the business. Clearly, Hunter learned the business. He's booking Ring of Honor. He didn't just come there to be a wrestling superstar. He came there to learn. AJ Styles learned how to be a superstar by doing less. And that's the primary lesson he was taught. Hernandez did his first match, and he told, still tells the story. Hernandez came in, came to the back, looked at me, and, and he's much bigger than I am. And he said, what do you think, Bill? And I said, it sucked. Because he was a big man trying to do too much, and he was losing credibility in the process. So we had to teach him a little bit about how to work as a bigger guy and where to put in his dive out of the ring so that people would go, holy crap. We had to teach Abyss to stop bumping so much. But at the time, Prince Justice, then Justice, because I hated the Prince thing. Um, and then he went to school with Dutch Mantel in Puerto Rico and got even better. And he, he did pretty well. Ronnie Killings was one of the first guys we worked with, and it was the same, it was the same idea. A great rule that you know I learned and that AJ learned and others have learned and what we teach is if you think you're going uh, too slow in a match, uh, likely you need to slow down. And not very few promotions teach. Most promotions, the insight you get when you come to the back is, good match, kid, and, you know, nobody really meant it. When you come into my promotions, the business I created, you're not there to get paid. You're there potentially to learn something. So if you're fat, if you're ugly, you wear a T-shirt, and you're convinced by, you look, by looking in some clown mirror that you have at home that you're actually <laughs> in great shape and a WWE superstar – I'm probably not going to be able to help you because I, I don't take advantage of folk, which means I'm going to bluntly tell you you're, you're fat and useless. Um, when Gunner was with us as Phil Shatter, he was doing something he shouldn't to try to get to be a bigger person for a period of time. I, I'm going to say he was taking his vitamins and saying his prayers. And I, had, I, and I tried to get him to stop taking his vitamins and saying his prayers, you know, although aspects of that are probably okay. And... Um, and he, and he, by the way, he does continue in the prayer, prayer part, so I, you know, he's doing that pretty well. But anyway, <laughs> I, um, I had Terry Taylor come in, and I had Terry go up, and I said, here's my problem. You know, the guy's retaining so much water, he's about to blow up. Gee, wonder why. So Terry went up and bluntly addressed the issue with him, which I had done over and over, and got him to realize he didn't need to do what a lot of people think they needed to do to make it. So there's all ends of the spectrum. Uh, when I went to work for WWE, they said, Bill, you know, you're known for, you know, for pushing smaller guys and creating stars out of smaller guys. 
And I said, well, yeah, except my heavyweight champions have been guys like Hernandez, Iceberg, Justice, Stone Mountain, big guys. You just don't remember that. You know, you have a tendency because of how we position them as credible performers, not just flip-flop and fly guys, you have a tendency to look to Jimmy Ray, who, by the way, is over six foot. But regardless, Matt Seidel, um, Delirious, uh, Luke Hawks, who was alter boy Luke at the time, and, and you can go AJ Styles, all of the various Adam Jacobs, all of the people we were using, Jason Cross. There were so many smaller guys that we were putting into the mix. And all of a sudden, Wildside and now Anarchy have become places where a lot of people want to be and different than everybody else. It has nothing to do with getting paid. That's my business. I don't know no, anybody else is doing that business because it's hard to do. But uh, that's what's made me successful is, is not being the guy that's going to get anybody paid. I'm never going to be anybody's payday. I hopefully am going to help people find a way to get paid, and then if I'm really lucky, they'll pay me. Well, I like that idea. I have one more question for you that goes along this uh, line, which is what is the importance of storytelling and building in wrestling? It's another thing that seems to be sadly lacking, especially in the, you know, well, even some in the big leagues. But certainly those that are not in the big leagues, this, this idea of telling a story seems to be lacking. Wrestling is wrestling in its purest form is storytelling. It's an aggressive soap opera, and a soap opera uh, never goes one day a week. Soap operas go five days a week, and on the fifth day, they leave you with a cliffhanger that wants you to watch on on Monday. That's the analogy. Um, wrestling is the same animal. Uh, constantly, you hear about somebody being called a booker. There's a misnomer when it comes to that word. Booking is not synonymous with matchmaking. Matchmaking is part of booking. Matchmaking, though, is not booking. Any monkey can be a matchmaker, and 90% of the promoters and a goodly percentage of the people that believe they are and call themselves bookers aren't bookers, they're matchmakers. The difference is the storytelling. And the storytelling, then, is also based on your knowledge as the booker and the talent's knowledge of who they are. What is my character? What is my motivation? We have gotten into an tendency in the business now to script an awful lot where we have writers telling people who they are. We're, we're doing this like movies. You know, Tom Cruise is going to be a rock star, so Tom has to learn to be a rock star. The problem, though, is Tom gets a lot of rehearsal time and a lot of retakes. So he's allowed to make a lot of mistakes. In wrestling, you make your mistakes live in front of a crowd, and there's no there's no takebacks. It, it's just a mistake, and it can it can paint you badly from day one, and you may never dig out of that or kick out of that in your entire time. So the first challenge for wrestlers and for bookers, but it starts with the wrestler, is who are you? Once a booker knows who you are and you know who you are, now you can really tell a story. Otherwise, simplistic booking is booking around titles. This guy has a title. This guy wants the title. These guys are going to have a match. Somebody's going to win the title. That's simplistic booking. Anybody can do that, and we all do. Real booking is building to a payoff that's based on emotion. 
something where your audience can quite literally suspend disbelief and for a moment believe in the fiction they're seeing in a real way. It's not just two guys rolling around in their underwear. It's a story, and you care about this person in some fashion, and you'd prefer that person be victorious of that person. There's a reason for that. It's not simplistic. It's not the heel going out and doing a you suck, you swallow frenzy to get cheap heat and the baby face coming out and slapping the mat, kicking his feet and, and clapping his hands. You know, simplistic spot show garbage. All of that is not what wrestling is in its purest and best form. Wrestling is the aggressive soap opera. It's a process of storytelling. And it's not one day, two days, three days, four days, five days. It can go on forever. Most of the angles I book that are important to the promotions I've been involved go up to a year before the payoff. And I'm proud of that. We just did that in anarchy by having former owner Jerry Palmer come in and split the company in half. And he's taking over. And we made his motivations not just traditionally, I'm a bad guy, I'm a heel, hate me. We gave him some credibility in his position. You know, heels tell what they perceive to be the truth, even if it's a lie. But they tell it truthfully. Baby faces are fighting in theory for a greater good. If you, and it, but sometimes you don't, you don't have to rush that process. You need people to get a little bit confused. Now, for example, I've split everybody up in the, in the company and you're limited only three people in a group, and I've got heels that normally, clearly these guys are heels, clearly these guys are the baby faces, and now it depends on who's in the ring as to who the heel and the baby face is right now as I reboot. And, and that's booking, and that's the storytelling. Hopefully a good story, not every story is. But that's the process, otherwise, you know, and what you see more often than not with people calling it booking is just putting two guys in the ring. And if you're booking, you have to remember what you do. You have to learn from what you do. You have to pay attention and be willing to slightly change direction. It doesn't have to be a straight line. You know, very few trips are on a straight line. If you take a road trip, invariably the road is going to curve, and maybe even a road's going to be blocked. You're going to have to take another road. So you can't be afraid of that. If you open a door, you need to close a door. Dutch Mantel used to say, don't ever be afraid to open a door. The area where Dutch and I would sometimes disagree is he'd leave the door open, but forget about it. And, uh-huh. you know, there's this, there's this draft coming through, but, but nobody's closing the freaking door. Um, <laughs> also, you do have to believe in the foundation of all pure storytelling, which is you have to give people an emotional investment to truly get them involved in your storytelling. We call it baby faces and heels. Um, Vince Russo and I used to argue all the time because Vince would say there's no such thing as baby faces and heels. The lines have been blurred. And I said, you're wrong. There is such thing as baby faces and heels. And, yes, the lines have been blurred. But you still need to figure out a way to get your audience emotionally invested in the motivation of those characters in that generalization of baby face and heel. Just like in Westerns, it used to be white hat, black hat. It's never that clear anymore. Vampires can be heels. Vampires can be baby faces. It's how you present them. It's not pure definition. There's no, you don't have to have pure good, pure bad. But you do have to have some position that your audience can embrace more than another. Or what you end up with is, again, what too many people end up with, which is simply matches with a lot of fireworks and no payoff. And if you think about it, 
if you watch matches with a bunch of high spots, usually starting at the beginning in the shine, you know, way too early, continuing through the heat, finally they do them all again just for the fun of it and the comeback. And by the end of it, there's this big flurry, something gigantic happens, there's a finish, yay, and nobody remembers a damn thing, just like <laughs> the fireworks display. When you go home, you do not remember the specifics of a fireworks display. You could not, to the best of your memory, no human could ever go to a group of people and describe the progression of a fireworks display. Too much happened. It was just a bunch of pretty lights and colors, and it sure was entertaining when I watched it, and it would be brand new to me again if I watched it again. But I didn't come home with a story. And that's where a lot of matches, a lot of wrestlers fail themselves. They're more interested in what they're getting in the match than whether they're telling a story. Corey Hollis, one of the kids I've been helping, a very talented young man who's working with Ring of Honor and throughout the Southeast now and is doing just an amazing job only three, four years in. First year in, he was Rookie of the Year, runner-up in PWI. Um, you know, great little talent. And he was about to wrestle Jay Briscoe up in North Carolina, so he sent me a text and he said, what do you recommend I do in my match with Jay? And I said, tell a story. That was the advice. The second bit of advice is, since you've been stealing the Styles Clash and using it, if you use it, you better pin Jay and win the ROH title. Otherwise, don't use the freaking thing. That was my advice. <laughs> and that's the other thing. People, you know, wrestlers betray themselves. They use finish, they use finish moves as transitions. The DDT was a finish move. Now it's a transition or a double down spot. It's just stupid. Um, I've watched great, well-respected wrestlers. Davey Richards is, has a tremendous reputation, and occasionally he drives me nuts because I'll watch Davey, and Davey will grab a submission hold maneuver because he likes to integrate MMA stuff in his stuff. You know, you know that if you've watched him. And he'll get bored with his own hold. He'll, he'll be holding it for a while, and the guy's struggling, and he hasn't made it to the ropes, and Davey will decide to change to a different body part. And I'm going, what the hell? You, <laughs> you had the hold. Don't get so bored. That doesn't happen in MMA. The guys don't get bored. <laughs> That's a good point. That's uh, definitely a good point. You, you know, Bill, uh, when I was doing my little bit of research, I mean, uh, yeah, I've been familiar with you for many years. I, I go back to the old NWA wrestling boards as, as well as uh, DKM. And, uh, you know, it was always cool to see you uh, post on the boards and, and, and your updates that were on the website. Um I've always been curious about uh, the the uh, show business Inc. and and how you get uh, you represent wrestlers as well as everything else you do with the business. How did you get into the position of like uh, more or less being an agent for these guys? Uh, that that translated out of Wildside. I began pushing my crew. Um, you know, we in 2001, we all went down and did an invasion of the Florida group that uh, Howard and Ron Nemi were doing, and it was a great start. And then the idiots all got up from the beatdown and started cutting promos, and I decided never to go back again because they already killed all the heat on it. But it was a good start. That was the same night that AJ worked Chris Daniels for the first time and, and made his reputation, even though he had already been signed to WCW. But starting with AJ, with Jimmy Rave, with Bad Attitude, with you know all of those kids, I began encouraging their growth, and in the process, I was then dealing with what are the what are the top indies at the time. At the time, Ian Rotten was actually running a good show and paying people. You know, this was before recent days. And Combat Zone, uh, Zandig was was doing a pretty decent job at the time, although a little more aggressive product than I liked. 
and Ring of Honor when it got started. And, uh, and the guys I was developing were naturally the indie stars that would feed to these guys out of what little reputation we had in the South, because we were really the only guys creating a reputation, uh, good or bad, for folks to get north or get into the Midwest. And that, we started doing that. Well, by doing that, then other people learn about you. Also, I had always been interactive with and involved with the other companies in their development processes. In, uh, in just before the end of WCW, myself and Wildside were, were hired to do development of WCW talent, and that crop of people were coming to us, Bob Sapp, The Beast, and guys that didn't get on TV, Danny Fricker and Sam Greco and Robbie Rage and, and various others, and guys that did uh, Jin Jack O'Hare, Three Count, blah, blah, blah. All the, these guys were all coming in to our little building and working out, so I met an awful lot of people. Then I was hired in 2005 by WWE um, to set up their Deep South development. So I was able, even though that lasted only a brief period of time because we all didn't play well together, unfortunately. Um, the reality was, I, by being involved with WCW, WWE, TNA from its very beginning, um, and I was booking the Explosion show at TNA, over time, it, you know, people would go, hey, you're helping this guy, can you help me? You're helping this guy, can you help me? And some of the people, like AJ, who's a full-time client, I'm his manager, agent, you know, I run his career. Uh, similarly, I, I handle most of Chris Daniels' career. And then everything else is in a category of as little as I just book them an occasional show to I negotiate their contracts. Everybody's relations is a bit different. AJ is a complete thing. Daniels is close to a complete thing. And others bounce all over the place depending on what their need is i mean with scotty steiner i i book independent stuff but i've also reviewed every contract he's had over the last few years so it just varies some guys need more help than others and i try to provide it when i can and in your reach is pretty great too because uh when you look over the list and, and folks can visit the website um either wildside.com or um i believe it's s show business inc sbi yeah, uh, sbibookings.com is the booking site. But the, the Wildside Tribute site where we do post the old TV shows, so that's worth visiting just for the fun of it, is nwawildside.com, uh, okay. which is the same. It's actually this, the, the very first website we had, and it's the same address, so we're one of the survivors in that. Um, and I, I just encourage, I've, we're up to episode 106 is up now, so the first couple of years have already been posted, and the stuff that's up now, not to get off topic, but... If you're, a wild, if you're a wild side fan, the stuff that's up now is the AJ Styles, Jason Cross stuff, and and the influx of the uh, what are I guess going to be called the Ring of Honor guys at the time, but that we're about to see the you know the influx of the Amazing Reds and the Briscoes and our teams, the TNTs and the Lost Boys are are getting going, and uh, so there's there's some of the stuff that fans look back on as as the best of what we were able to accomplish in that company is is what we're posting the beginnings of right now because um, that's where we really started to come into our own was in 2001 and that's the stuff that's going up right now. Well, uh, and on the um, the sbibookings.com, uh, I mean, there's so many different talents, uh, not just based in the South or or in Georgia, but I mean all over the U.S. I, I saw Joey Ryan's name on there and Adam Pierce, and then as well as, like you said, Christopher Daniels, AJ Styles, and and Scotty Steiner, and and really talent from all over the world. 
if a, if a pro yeah, wrestler. And usually is, the guys are nice. They recommend it's usually I, I get another guy because one of my clients will call up and say, hey, do you mind helping this guy? Like DDP got in touch with me because Kevin Nash suggested it. So I started helping Dallas. Um, you know, but I don't. What I don't do, stupidly or not, is I literally do not solicit for other people's business. I do not call up wrestlers and go after they get released from WWE and say, "Hey, you know, I'm your guy." Um, right. I've never done that. Never will. It's just not my spot. And and when when uh, let's say I'm Joe Schmo promoter and uh, you know in in uh, Arizona and I need talent for a show. Do you do you send the whole roster? Or do you just send a few guys? I mean, how does that work? How does the process work? I, well, I've I've told and I've explained this to the wrestlers sometimes on why is this guy getting booked when I'm not. What I am is uh, I, I'm at one of those. I, I'm a waiter at a restaurant that serves way too much food, um, and the menu <laughs> is gigantic. And you may have gone to one of those restaurants, the one where they hand you this book, and you don't know how the hell they can fix all this stuff. But invariably. There's a few things that sell better than others. I use I always analogize, you know, on the menu there's the big thick juicy steak, and on the menu there's liver and onions. Now, a lot of people like big thick juicy steaks. Probably more people like big thick juicy steaks than they do liver and onions. My mom, for example, loves liver and onions. Me, not so much. So I don't care how well they prepare liver and onions, I'm ordering the big thick juicy steak. And so as I've had to explain to some wrestlers, some of you are going to be liver and onions. You're going to be a very tasty dish that only a few people are really going to want to spend the money for. And others are big, thick, juicy steaks that everybody wants to spend. And no matter how much we crank that stuff up, because we can call it prime meat and make more out of it, they still want to book that guy. So we have that. What do I do? I usually start uh, by sending them the full menu and saying, narrow it down. I do not send out price lists. I will not send out a mass price list. I handle way too many people to do that to them because once I send a price out, it gets published. And there's enough of that as it is with other with people saying this to this and too much discussion among wrestlers as to what each makes versus the other, whereas a fair price is what makes you happy, not what somebody else is making. And um so I, I send out the laundry list. I send the whole list. Either I send it as an attachment or encourage them to go to the website. And then most people are able to narrow down. Because most people, if they're booking a star, they know what a star is. Because people go, well, who, who draws? You know, who's a good draw? And my answer is nobody. Which is a terrible answer when you're trying to book people, but it's the truth. <laughs> no person is a draw. How you promote a person can be. What else you're doing in your promotion is what's going to make or break you. Not putting Kevin Nash's name on top of a poster. That alone is not going to draw, no matter how hard you try, unless you promote. Right. You know, it, it, and putting it on the Internet is relatively useless. 99% of the promotion that's done by promoters now is Internet promotion, which is the most useless promotion you can possibly do, because everything the Internet folk want is on the Internet. They don't need to go watch a show. They've got it all here. They can go watch the frickin' match on YouTube. So, right. it, you know, you, you're, you're feeding a machine that isn't to your advantage by doing that. You need to get people that are already predisposed to want to get off their lazy asses and go out somewhere. You know, not, not the, the everybody that, sit, that sits for nine hours a day on Twitter talking about what they're eating for lunch. You know, it's, <laughs> it's just a different, you know, it's a different mentality on that thing. So that's what I do is I send out the list, then I quote price. 
I like to do all of my bookings by email. I rarely will confirm if, or I almost never will confirm anyone by phone. Occasionally by text, and even and even that, I'm I'm hesitant. But I always have to have a writing. It doesn't have to be a contract, but an you know a meeting of the minds that's clearly established through an email. It's good for me. It's good for the other person. Any promoter that doesn't want to do that is probably trying to get away with something. I've learned. Right. So you have that exchange. You agree on pricing. I always require a deposit. A, it's how I get paid because I'm going to take whatever percentage I'm taking from the wrestler out of that money. So I need to get money in to take my money because I don't want to have to call so-and-so, the wrestler, and say, send me my freaking money. That's eh, just not good. So that's the other reason. And uh, there's been so much lately of promoters booking things and canceling or canceling the entire show and going, whoops, just kidding, that you almost have to do it now because of the worst of the promoters, you have to punish everyone the same way. You, you have to be, you know, I, not, you know, I don't trust you, so I need a deposit, has to go with Michael Bryan, who I do trust, to pay. But I still need to get a deposit from Mike, and he understands. So. Right. Hey, Bill, I have a quick question for you here based on some of the, some of the things you were just talking about. And... Uh, one of the things from when with the NWA that was often criticized was the Ohio State Fair show. Uh, and they they feel like not enough promotion went into it or or whatever. Can you talk a little bit about that, Dee? Or what you know yeah, about I, that? Well good 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 news if whatever failure or success of that show, it's like the presidency, I get to wear that because I I was the person that did that. Um, here was the double-edged sword. Uh, first of all, how we came into that show was, and without specifics as to who, a promoter had approached the Ohio State Fair to do a wrestling show uh, three years ago, I want to I say. And that promoter did a poster that I saw on the Internet promoting the Steiner Brothers. Unfortunately, that promoter had never confirmed the Steiner brothers, nor quoted Price, nor actually spoken to them. He just happened to know them, which was enough of a reason in his eyes to put them on the poster as if they're going to be there. I wrote this guy. He said, oh, well, I'm going to get with Scotty and, and Robbie, and it'll be fine, and, and I'm going, yeah, right. And I, I, talked to, I talked to Rick and Scott, and there they go, oh, God, not that idiot. And, you know, and it was one of those kind of things. So I called the Ohio State Fair and spoke to the girl there and said, blah, 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 these guys aren't confirmed, I just need you to know that. And that was my, my interaction. About a month later, and relatively last minute the first year, because um, it was the end of July is when they do this thing, and this was June already by the time, she called up and she said, you are 100% right, this guy is a total crook and we're not doing business with him, but now if I don't deliver wrestling, the... You know, the, the, the people here at the Ohio State Fair, because I'm the one, you know, on the board that said it was a good idea. She, she had been, um, I really need to deliver a show. Can you help me? And I, so I, we went, I said, okay, what's the deal? They said, well, we'll give you the facility, and you pay the expenses, and you can charge tickets. We'll also sell it as an add-on to the fair ticket, and it's a win-win, hopefully, for both of us. And I said, well, you know, this is going to be hard to draw last minute like this, um, you know, can you all give us support? Well, you know, once the fair is up and running, we can run announcements during the day. We can do this. We can do that. We can do this, and it'll be great. It'll be helpful. 
so we ended up doing it, and, and on the first show we booked, um, uh, we had Abyss and Scotty Steiner were our stars. And they came in early. They did the parade. We didn't do too badly. We had about five to 600 people, but we ended up also having a building that was easy to get into, so people were avoiding paying and getting in anyway. And at one point I looked up in the upper balcony, and we had about 200 people that hadn't paid, and now we're trying to get the uh, – there were a lot of things bad. The promotion that they said they're going to do, she did so well-meaning, and she was very helpful. But the people that were in charge of promotion wouldn't run the spot we had created at any time during the fair, as it turned out. So the entire crowd that was there could only become aware that we were there because, hey, well, by the way, we were late, so we weren't even in the program. So if you if you bought, you know, got a hold of the here's the stuff the the stuff at the fair, you would look down there and go. Oh, Meatloaf is performing. You know, you know, you knew that, but you didn't know there's wrestling. And when they were so uh, clueless about it, and again, not anything we can uh, I, we can help with, the people at the the people that were at the health areas, the only wrestling they were aware of was the amateur wrestling. So nine out of ten times, they sent people to the wrong place when it came to get tickets. We had challenges with the fair. First year, we we did much better with those challenges. Um, and we, we drew, and we lost money. Um, the second year, we cut the budget, we drew less, and go figure, we made money. But um, it was a less impressive show. The first year's show was a much better show than the second year, and much better received. And uh, neither ourselves, we weren't going to go back, and the fair, had, you know, we had a conversation, and both of us agreed, eh, this isn't working as well as we'd like. We're not, we aren't cooperating as much as you need, and, you know, and it's not, there's the sizzle's not there, and we were in a double-edged sword. Unless we booked a name that would draw casual audience to buy a ticket, the general audience wasn't predisposed to just go watch a wrestling show. And without that being pushed in the program on the on the mic system to the thousands that are walking around the days that I was there trying to sell tickets, what I was was one guy sitting out in the sun at a table at a very high traffic area trying to sell whatever I could, plus whatever folk would buy based on us being available through Ticketmaster. But it it, it, it ended up being a, a nice experiment. I enjoyed doing it. The people at the fair that I worked with were very, very nice, and most were cooperative, and the people that weren't cooperative, unfortunately, were key people in terms of our ability to draw a house. But in terms of the shows, both shows went well. The first year show, though, was a much, much better show. It just played better second year show we had also a minor problem our main event that we had promoted for several months ended up not happening because we had a gentleman who decided that rather than um do the booking he'd agreed to do and uh posters that had been done by his partner uh he decided that uh he was it was more valuable to the nwa for him to remain champion and for him to go to japan on a tour that he wasn't booked um so invariably, we didn't have the uh, the Sheik, the Almighty Sheik, um, and we ended up not having a champion going in, and we ended up creating a match to crown a champion, which is not the way we started our promotion. So we did have the perfect storm that second show also of not being able to deliver what we wanted to deliver and have a coherent straight line promotion. Our card kept changing on us. Not, not that we wanted it to, but that was simply part of the fun of the fi- my final year in the NWA. We had a whole bunch of people that decided that they were more valuable than the organization. 
um, and bless their hearts. Did I lose you all? I'm still here. Are you? Uh, I think we may have lost Jay accidentally. But uh, first of all, I just wanted to tell you how much we appreciate your your coming on and sharing your story. Uh, it's obvious that you have a lot of knowledge, and I want to thank you for for sharing it with us. And and quite frankly, um, it sounds it sounds like somebody's breastfeeding. Well, Sorry, that's my little okay. one. Oh, okay. Well, then I was right. Okay. Yeah. Oh, oh, by the way, going back to Ohio, and I'll leave you with this. Uh, uh, by the way, I am the worst promoter on the face of the earth, just so that I can clearly establish that. I am a terrible promoter, and it was going to be a debacle to make me be the key promoter at the Ohio Fair, but I enjoyed doing it. But I am not in the Burt Prentice class of um, – being able to go out and get people in and then getting every dime out of them once they get in there. I just am not good at it, which is why I chose the path I did. Uh, I learned early on I'm not the guy that wants to set the chairs up, that wants to do all that stuff. Uh, I have much more fun and I have much greater credibility and impact working storyline, working character development, working in the locker room. Um, I can run a show with the best of them. I can run a building well. But getting butts into seats, which is the definition of a promoter, I am not good. And that's something also anybody that wants to be a promoter really needs to have their own little, you know, come to Jesus moment. They really need to figure out, am I good at this? Because you either are or you're not. There isn't a gray area. Either you know how to hustle and you know how to draw people or you don't. And putting up a bunch of posters isn't (laughs) the beginning and the end of promoting. It is the beginning, but it's definitely not the end. And buying a few ads, all of that stuff sounds like it does it, but there's a whole lot more work than that, and only a very few people really can be called promoters and carry that that title well. Well, again, Bill, uh, we thank you so much for your time today. Uh, I know you don't have to do these things, but uh, we greatly appreciate that you did uh, come on our show today. Um, if you guys want to follow Bill on Twitter, it's at William Barons. That's at William B E H R E N S. And then uh, they can also find you on Facebook if uh, if you so uh, so inclined to uh, allow them to uh, become a Facebook friend and all that good stuff. Um, I'm up to get- four thousand nine hundred and ninety-one. So uh, until I kill more people or they drop out of Facebook, I got nine to go. So. <laughs> Nine to go, first come, first serve. First come, first serve. Well, again, thanks, Bill, for your time. And, and uh, again, folks can visit uh, nwawildside.com for the uh, the past, the, the history of uh, NWA Wildside and, and all the good stuff that happened out in Cornelia. And, of course, they can visit anarchywrestling.net, uh, I believe. for uh, uh, Anarchy-wrestling.net is the new website that uh, no longer uses those three letters we used for a while. Right. Well, again, uh, thank you for your time, Bill, and, and have a good day. Thank you. Pleasure. All right, I got to go to a baby uh, DK talk for a second. Well, while he's taking care of the baby, again, I want to appreciate her appreciation for Bill. Don't know what happened to Jaden. Jaden, shame on you for not being on the call. 
And I'd also like to mention our one of our sponsors, Roughly Title Belt. Don't let the name fool you. This isn't getting a toy belt and putting stickers on it. This is a place to get a real belt for real promotions. And so with all that being said, thanks to our our guests, thanks to all our listeners, and we'll catch you again in about two weeks. Well, one more thing. I, I have to read these lists here real quick. Uh, I, first of all, you know, we've been on the Y'all Like Wrestling Radio Network here for just about, uh, this is our fourth show being on here. Next week, we'll, or I'm sorry, in two weeks from today, we'll have the legendary B-Boy will join us on our show. But the Y'all Like Wrestling Radio Network features Vendetta Pro Radio, which is Tuesdays at 8 p.m., NPW Radio, Wednesdays at 7 p.m., Beyond the Kayfabe, Thursdays, 9 p.m., and they recap Raw, SmackDown, and Impact. And then also, of course, you got us every uh, Saturday, every other Saturday, 10.30 a.m. You can visit the website, blogtalkradio.com, forward slash y'all like wrestling, or on your phone, 646-478-5966. And our sponsors, our sponsors are the Tong Su Do uh, University, which is led by Jason Flame. Uh, who's a martial arts master and has uh, 20 plus years of uh, black belt martial art experience. They have classes for the entire family, ages three and up, uh, and they are based out in uh, Southern California. You can visit their website, www.tsdukarate.com, or visit them on Facebook, tsdukarate.com. And uh, thank you guys for tuning in. Sorry about the baby. We'll see you in two weeks. Great news. Albertsons, Chevron, and Texaco are offering savings at the pump. Sign up today to earn gas rewards on your grocery purchases. Just go to albertsons.com forward slash rewards or download the Albertsons app to sign up. Enter your phone number at checkout and earn points. Redeem your gas rewards at participating Chevron, Texaco, and Vons gas stations. Maximum gas reward at participating Chevron or Texaco stations is 20 cents per gallon and up to $1 per gallon at Vons stations in a single fill-up, up to 25 gallons. Other restrictions and exclusions apply. See complete details at albertsons.com forward slash rewards. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.